Hello, I'm Sarah Day, Policy and Research Manager at HFMA, and you're listening to HFMA Talk, the podcast for NHS finance. This episode reflects part of the broad range of experience that our members and colleagues have to share, as we speak to people working in two different sectors, supporting organisations in different regions. Part of our role at the HFMA is to support people to feel less isolated in their work and decision-making at this time by sharing learning and experience from other areas. The separate parts of the NHS are understandably facing different challenges in relation to COVID-19, but there is also much which is similar and worth sharing, and the differences can help us to appreciate what our colleagues and friends are dealing with across the country. The HFMA is producing a range of podcasts that will hear from people working across different sectors, regions and roles. Sharing personal experiences of the pandemic and highlighting areas of learning so far can be very helpful for us all. In the second half of this episode, we will hear the perspective of a non-executive director and how they are supporting their organisation during the pandemic. But first, Mike Jennings, Chief Financial Officer at Sussex Community NHS Foundation Trust, talks about the impact that COVID-19 has had on community services. Hello, Mike. Thank you for finding time to talk to us today. Hi, Sarah. Uh, No problem at all. Could you start by telling us a bit about your trust or where you are, what you do and so on? Yeah, so um, so my name is Mike Jennings. I'm Chief Financial Officer and Deputy Chief Executive for Sussex Community NHS Foundation Trust. Um, we tend to, as all NH organisations do, uh, refer to ourselves as an abbreviation. So if, if during the podcast I say SCFT, I'm just referring to Sussex Community Foundation Trust. Um, as a trust, we're based in Sussex, as our name would suggest. So the headquarters is in Brighton and Hove, but we serve the populations of West Sussex, Brighton and Hove uh, and East Sussex. Um, we're not the only community provider in, in uh, NHS community provider in East Sussex, uh, but we're the main community provider for a proportion of East Sussex uh, and do provide other services across the, the rest of East Sussex. So it's a population of about 1.3 million. Um, we, on last count, deliver about 9,000 separate patient interactions a day. So a huge amount of contact with the population. Um, we have about 5,200 staff, turnover of about 240 million. And we provide um, a range of services, both adult services, including uh, our intermediate care units, our community beds. We've got about 320 beds. We provide uh, district community nursing, which is uh, the service that many people will be familiar with. We provide responsive services, uh, which are emission avoidance and uh, discharge teams that help prevent people attending hospital uh, when a a crisis arises, uh, but also help get people out of hospitals as as soon as possible and cared for within their own homes. Um, Our teams are made up of physios, OTs, speech and language therapists, nurses, um, but we also provide uh, a healthy child programme, which are our health visitors. Um, We have paediatricians, doctors, um, and we have some specialist services. So um, neurological services in the Sussex Rehab Centre, Chaley Clinical, which uh, provides specialist neuro rehab for uh, children, and we provide some mental health as well. So um, we provide uh, IAP services, psychological therapies uh, across West Sussex. So massive range of services, 
a huge amount of staff and, and obviously geographically spread over over 100 locations. Wow, thank you. Um, and what sort of impact is COVID-19 having in your area, sort of the Sussex region at the moment? So in the Sussex region, um, we're beginning to see in the area um, uh, a number of admissions uh, of patients into uh, our, our uh, acute hospitals across Sussex. Um, and they're beginning to see a lot of pressure on intensive care. But we are behind um, sort of way, way behind the sort of figures that are being seen in London, thankfully. Um, so Pressures are, are being experienced, but um, not to that same degree uh, as has been reported in London. Um, we're very particularly looking at uh, enabling discharges out of hospitals. So we've been able to discharge huge numbers out of the acute hospital partners that we work with um, to be able to either care for them at home uh, or support them in our intermediate care units. Um, and, and that's been a huge amount of work for our teams over the last few weeks. Um, we have at the same time, uh, there's been a national uh, sort of uh, set up led by Matthew Wynn actually uh, across community trust to define what our core community services uh, must be that we retain the offer on uh, over over the pandemic period and which services actually we cease to provide to enable us to concentrate on the core services. So we have uh, stopped some of our services and we've been redeploying staff or in the process of redeploying over 500 now to beef up um, the core services that will continue, which in the main are supporting that discharge and keeping people healthy at home and away from hospital. How is COVID-19 impacting how you deliver your normal services then? You said you've had to stop delivering some, but has it meant that you've had to change the way in which you deliver others? Yeah, so uh, we have we have been changing the way uh, we delivered some services. And, and what I'd say is we were looking at this anyway. We, had, uh, we were fortunate to have started a big digital transformation programme during last financial year um, and had invested a considerable amount of money um, upgrading our hardware, upgrading our network, and then looking at how we would transform our services digitally. I'd say what's happened is we've ex we've built on that program and accelerated what we've been doing. So looking at um, remote ways of uh, dealing with patients, whether that's through kind of video uh, remote consultations, using apps um, to support patients and, and monitor patients remotely, um, which is something we've been doing in our uh, community diabetes service, Diabetes Care For You. So, um, so we're expanding the ways we can interactively um, uh, work with people from a distance, of course, to keep those patients safe and keep our staff safe. Mm. And are you seeing changes in demand for your sort of everyday services so obviously you're having to do more to um to enable discharge but are you having more people contact you for support who may otherwise have used a different way of uh, accessing those services um we have seen actually a drop in some services so uh, and i think this is similar to as um uh, our acute partners have seen so there are less people coming into our urgent treatment centers um, we run an urgent treatment centre in Crawley and we run sort of walk-in uh, services akin to minor injury uh, services elsewhere and less people are coming into those. But the increases we've seen are um, requests from our partners in primary care 
to support them in some of their operations uh, and request to support um, how we might remotely work uh, with uh, patients that are normally primary care patients or work yeah. with primary care to support patients in care homes. So so it's some and some. Some work's dropping, um, but there's some very specific work that's, that's increasing for us. And are you delivering anything which is a specific COVID-19 service? Um, my reason for asking that is we're doing a, a series of podcasts, you may have heard, with Sanjay Agrawal, who's um, a respiratory consultant up in Leicester, and he... And he has said that they are having to discharge people who are recovering from COVID-19 much quicker than they might want to. And then that becomes a community trust um, issue to support those people. Yeah, so um, I'll answer sort of that in two parts, actually. Um, The first part is the specific services we've been running. So we had set up um, uh, a mobile testing service early on, actually, during the pandemic phase. And we work with CCAM, our ambulance trust, uh, and and our staff go in uh, CCAM vehicles uh, and visit people in their own homes to provide mobile testing. Uh, So we set that up quite early. Um, We're also uh, have been supporting and look, looking to support uh, drive-through testing facilities. When it comes to actually supporting COVID patients who have been discharged from hospital, um, we haven't set up new specific services, but we will we'll be supporting those patients through both our community beds, our intermediate care units, and through our responsive services, who would be the normal discharge support teams anyway. They're highly skilled staff. Um, and uh, they, they are having to work, though, um, with people who maybe have a higher acuity um, or there are more people with a higher acuity, I should say, than, than we would normally be working with. Right. OK. And has your relationship changed with your local authority at all? Are you having to work more jointly with them at the moment? And again, we had good relationships with our local authorities, a community trust, and, and this will be familiar to anyone else who works in community trusts. Um, our services um, work in very close proximity to local authority social services um, and uh, work that's been undertaken over, over the last year for Sussex to become an ICS has actually meant those, those relationships were becoming stronger anyway. Um, the directors of adult social care are involved in our emergency response and are regularly involved anyway in our uh, integrated care system Sussex wide meetings. Um, so we've built on good relationships already, but, but undoubtedly local authority partners uh, are linked in and, and are playing a big part, especially around making sure we have packages of care available to care for patients who are being discharged um, and, and ongoing work with care homes and nursing homes. Mm. So just thinking about how, as an organisation, you are operating, have you had to change how you do things around, say, your financial governance, your procurement processes and so on? Um, We have thought about this and we've put some clear financial decision making frameworks in place. We found that we haven't had to move away from our scheme of delegation, our SFIs at all. So we're doing everything within our normal policy framework. But it means in terms of some of the procedures, we're having to make sure we're very agile whilst keeping that control in place. So um, as an organisation, we've got incident uh, control measures in place. We have daily silver command meetings, which are our operational leaders of the COVID operational work streams, kind of get together, make decisions. And uh, where that's out of their 
um, out of their sort of jurisdiction, which includes financial decisions that are outside the norm. They all go to um, a gold daily meeting, which is essentially our executive team meeting on a daily basis. Um, the trust right. board, our normal trust board has had to stop working, but we have a trust board meeting for one hour twice a month. Uh, we've got uh, our first one of those new format trust boards today, actually later today. And again, that gives us actually more opportunity to uh, make sort of rapid decisions if needed, um, even, even up at board level. And, and how are you holding that meeting today? Is it in person or are you doing that remotely? No, remotely. We, 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 all of our governance meetings uh, that we are still continuing with are remotely held and video conferenced. Which takes a bit of getting used to, doesn't it, to work in that, that new way? You need a new discipline and new skills and chairing a video conference meeting is, is very different to chairing a meeting in person, yeah. <laughs> and so everyone has to be patient um, and you have to be very good at uh, looking at people who are kind of uh, virtually putting their hand up, so to speak, so you can give everyone an opportunity to take part in the conversation. Yeah. And how are your finance team working? Are they, are they all remotely working as well? No, some and some. Um, we've, we've had a policy here um, and, and we've been very clear about it that we need a certain presence still within the trust um, because we need people to sometimes be very flexible and pick up jobs uh, sometimes on the same day that they didn't know they were going to have that day when they came in. So we've sort of thinned out mm. our staff. We're making sure that the places people do sit in when they come in um, uh, have enough space for people to keep social distancing going. Um, so on a kind of rotor basis, we've got some people working at home and some people in. Um, and uh, that seems to be working well at the moment. Um, uh, and uh, we'll continue it for a while. Like an example is our, so our PMO teams uh, and my service development teams that, uh, that I have in my directorate um, are now actually firmly supporting logistics uh, and there was a day when they were down at a newly created central PPE store on site here in Brighton and, and people who were project managers that morning suddenly became storemen uh, helping loading vans when we had a big delivery in. So, so yeah. we find it really important that we need some kind of on-site presence. We can't just uh, allow everybody to work from home because actually we, we just wouldn't be agile enough to respond to um, a, a, any emergency incidents. Okay. So how are you keeping your sort of team working going then with some people um, working remotely and some some on site? How are you maintaining that that team? Yeah. So, again, building on the digital um, rollout that we had, we'd already secured a large amount of new infrastructure such as laptops um, and we're pushing them out across all our staff across the trust. So we were fortunate to have a load of uh, uh, sort of brand new laptops to replace either aging desktops or very ancient laptops that um, I'm ashamed to say people had across the trust, um, <laughs> which means our remote working capabilities is, has been massively increased. Um, so we can have team meetings still, we can have daily team huddles virtually, um, and we're encouraging that across all the teams that we keep those team meetings, those virtual huddles um, happening all the time so people can stay up to date, people can stay in touch with their team, um, and everyone still feels connected with the work that's going on. And what sort of thing are you doing to help support well-being and resilience? Because obviously this is a very different way for everyone to work and it's quite a, a pressured situation. How are you 
tackling that at the moment for for your team and your your staff and and yourself as well? Yeah, so it, it is. I mean, what we've got to recognise is the the work's difficult, um, uh, and uh, it's a challenge, and people are having to solve new problems that they uh, that didn't exist, and they're having to do that very quickly. Uh, and people are you know are very committed to their work; they're very committed to the patient care we deliver. So they know that getting things right is really important as well. But you also have to recognise that people have a personal uh, response really to the pandemic as well. So people have their own worries and fears. People have their, their, their family to care for. People have children that were at school that are now trying to homeschool. And so you have to really be aware of the, the whole person impact. So what's going on in work and out of work. So we, we're having, uh, uh, with my team, I have um, sort of conversations about that. We have more frequent and shorter one-to-one so I can both talk to them about the work but talk to them about their personal circumstance and I'm encouraging all of my team uh, leaders to do the same with their staff um, mm. so so we can keep a dialogue going we can check in with people um, and, and we can make sure make sure people's well-being uh, is considered. We're also across the trust doing a lot of work uh, with our, uh, our HR team supporting. So making sure that there are um, occupational health has been beefed up, making sure there are chances for staff to access uh, online or uh, on telephone counselling if needs be. Uh, and we're trying to um, push out a lot of sort of goodwill gestures as well. So um, we've made sure on sites where we used to run restaurants that those uh, restaurants are closed, but the uh, food outlet bit is open so that staff can still access, you know, food easily and lunches. Yeah. Um, and we're looking at sort of uh, safe infection control ways to be able to give out sort of thank you parcels out to teams to recognise the work they're undertaking um, uh, and, and we've been tapping into sort of a lot of generosity from the public actually who've been donating actually to NHS charities together and others it means there's some funding available for us to fund some well-being initiatives for our staff so it's very multi-layered um, and obviously is something again that's uh, a, a program of work that um, between us and our teams and our HR colleagues uh, is being accelerated and pulled together rapidly but I, th I think done as well as we can. Um, we use the Cascade sort of system across the trust as well. We have a big video conference of all of our managers across the trust, about between 80 and 100 or so managers um, dial into our video conference once a week on a Wednesday where the exec team mm -hmm. talk to the team and then take questions from anyone. And then we cascade messages through that route as well. Um, and, and some of it's operational, but a large chunk of it is about well-being and the welfare of our staff. There's something I think that um, that not everyone will realise that is actually because of this discharge work community teams have been undertaking. Our our busy period starts where it has started in this pandemic way before the kind of numbers of confirmed cases came through because we were rapidly mobilising and trying to create that capacity in the acute hospitals before the numbers materialised. So uh, I kind of it's just to acknowledge the hard work our community nurses, physios, therapists have been doing in uh, making sure that actually there is enough capacity in, in our acute hospital partners. Uh, and the fact that a lot of people wouldn't have known that work was going on because whilst numbers in Sussex were still seeming small a few weeks ago, our teams were flat out trying to make this happen. Thank you so much for your time today, Mike. It's been really interesting to understand a bit more about how the community sector is working to tackle COVID-19. 
Thanks for the opportunity to speak to you. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Our second guest is Ian Turner. Ian is Deputy Chief Executive and Director of Finance at the HFMA, but he is also a non-executive director for Devon Partnership NHS Foundation Trust. Ian talks about the role of a non-executive director during the COVID-19 pandemic and how they can support organisations to both maintain good governance but also prepare for the future. Hello Ian, thank you so much for joining us today to have a talk to us about your role as a non-executive. No, it's entirely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So can you start by telling us a bit about the trust that you support and how it's being impacted by COVID-19? Sure. So it's a Devon Partnership uh, Trust. We are a mental health trust and we cover the geography of Devon, um, which is interesting because uh, as uh, a particularly rural uh, community, most of the geography, uh, but with a couple of uh, centres, Exeter and Plymouth, um, which have have a very different demographic to uh, to the rural areas, um, and you know that produces uh, particular challenges. And Devon Partnership, um, we run all the mental health services um, in Devon, um, including secure services um, linked to prisons, um, and also we do. Um, we actually do a bit of commissioning as well um, of services. We do learning disability services across Devon. And also um, outside the area, we run up and run some of the dementia services um, north of Devon and up into Bristol. And how is uh, COVID-19 beginning to impact your trust? Yeah, well, I guess as with the rest of the country, um, it, it impacts in all sorts of ways and um, in ways you wouldn't necessarily um, imagine um, initially. I mean, I think probably the I mean, in the West Country we've been quite blessed to date um, in terms of the amount of COVID nineteen activity. Um, whether that will continue, of course, um, remains to be seen. Um, however, um, so a lot of what we've been doing is is preparation and trying to make certain we're in the best place we possibly can be. We have some particular challenges, um, a bit like care homes. We have um, units with very vulnerable people in them. Um, so the, you know, the, the 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 key plan in those areas is to try and keep those um, areas shielded as much as possible, um, and have all sorts of protocols in place to try and make certain that um, if there is any potential of COVID nineteen um, getting into one of those units, that we know exactly what we're going to do if that happens. But more importantly, we try and avoid it happening. Um, that means. Um, staff um visitors coming into those um settings are very it's quite a challenging thing to do um to have and also keeping staff i mean i think staffing is probably one of the key areas as as a, as again is the same across the country because although we can um we can try and monitor um, the transmission of covid within the facilities we've got i mean obviously everyone has a life and they and they have to go home and um, they work with uh, they live with other people who are working um so we have had considerable uh, reduction in staffing levels um the staff that we have particularly in those secure units are highly trained um so it's not that easy in just you know bringing in uh, new people to come to come and support and help uh, but you know, to date, it's um, it's gone extremely well. Um, 
so I think those are probably the key areas. I mean, there is the, you know, we've kicked into emergency planning, gold, silver, bronze, um, and we've done a fantastic, I have to say the team have done a fantastic job in making themselves virtual. Um, I wouldn't say that's been seamless, but it's um, it's working, um, which is a, which is a fantastic thing. So, and, and that obviously is part of the the planning that we put in place, particularly for um, for for COVID nineteen. So I think that gives a bit of a flavour. I mean, there there are other things, of course, but those I think are the key things. Thank you. So, what does your role as a non-executive director usually entail, and how has that role had to change because of the pandemic? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The um, at one level, you could you could argue that our role hasn't changed at all. We're there to support um, the executive to to challenge the, uh, the 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 decisions and make certain that um, things are being thought about from different angles. And clearly, there's a there's a key strategic role for non-executive director. Um, I think the. Uh, Probably the biggest challenge as a non-executive director in these circumstances is trying to work out what it is that you can do best to support the organisation and and the and the, the team. Um, whenever things get tricky, there's obviously a real temptation to dive in and get operational, which um, you know, quite frankly, is probably the last thing that um, the executive need as non-executive mm-hmm. directors. Um, starting to be too operational at the same time it's very important for the non-execs to be very close to what is happening and um, and able to support which you can't do unless you know what's going on so i think the um covid19 or indeed any emergency whether it's covid19 or something else you know um does require some careful thought from the non-executive directors as to how they should behave and what they do. I mean, the sort of things that I think probably the biggest challenge, one of the biggest challenges for the board in general, actually, not just non-execs, is so much about what you want to do is being visible. So um, one of the things that we uh, we all want to do and like to do is to get out and walk around, meet staff, um, go into facilities, see patients, um, and and you know very much be uh, faces out there in the in the um, in the mental health trust community that you cannot do at the moment. No. Um, so you have to find different ways of doing things. As an ex- um, and so we've encouraged, and in fact, um, Melanie Walker, the chief executive, has done a fantastic job in running a sort of weekly uh, message to all staff. Um, as a as a as a as a, as a virtual message, um, so that um, everyone can log in and see that. Um, as non-executive directors, um, we have um, accepted that we're not going to be you know sort of faces out there in the community, but um, we tried to make certain that we're fully aware and on top of what's going on and able to support the executive team as best we can. Uh, on an operate on the operational side, and we do that by we have a weekly download call, board call. Um, it is literally no more than half an hour, and it's the executive team um, giving a quick update as to what's happening, and the non-execs are, are able to make suggestions, comment. Um, but that is a a real 
you know, short download so that we're all in the same, we're all on the same page. And as non-execs, we've we've all been around the houses. We've got a very strong group of non-execs with all sorts of different backgrounds, and most of us have seen um, challenging situations and crises before, not not necessarily a pandemic. So we all have an interesting interesting views to bring to bear. So I think that's been very very helpful. Um, so I think those those are the sort of that's the sort of key stuff. The other thing that we've been doing, which I think has been led by non-execs really, um, is is really being quite um, forceful, if that's the right word, in um, trying to make certain the execs don't burn out and overdo it themselves. Mm. Um, so trying to make certain that um, the execs who are desperate to try and make certain everything's absolutely fine, make certain they do take some time off on a rotational basis. Yeah. It's within the emergency planning sort of procedures, but it is very difficult um, for an exec who cares desperately about what's going on for them, you know, to have some downtime. So we've we've had to be quite sort of, I say, forceful as a group of non-execs supporting that. The other thing we've done, which I think, to be fair, was in, was in place anyhow, but as I think has proved to be very, very useful is Every non-exec tends to have an exec who they sort of mentor. Um, right. And that's been very valuable in this particular situation because, again, it's not it's not an non-exec ringing up an exec every day or anything like that, but it's being there on the end of the phone or on the end of a, um, a call, you know, Teams call, Skype call, um, to be able to support the, the exec and for, allow them just to be able to talk things through um, sort of outside the close executive team community that they're in and I think that's been that's been quite a useful a useful thing uh, through this process I mean certainly my my role is very much on the sort of finance side so well that's my skill base so uh, Phil Mante the um, the finance director and I have a a fairly regular conversation, which is usually led by Phil, actually, you know, him, him calling me just to bounce a few ideas and um, and make certain that, um, that um, you know, it's a sounding board, I suppose, someone to talk through and talk things through with. Yeah. One of the things that we have heard from other people is that it can feel quite isolated, some of the decisions that people are having to make, they're feeling they're having to make them very quickly and without that level of discussion they would normally have. So I think the support you've just mentioned is clearly really valuable. How are you dealing with the, some of the governance issues that you would normally get involved with? Is that dealt with in your weekly call? Yeah, no, it's a good point. So um, I, I should have added, so we have the weekly call, which is very much an informal thing. Um, but we are also, so the government structures... Um, We've um, streamlined them, uh, so uh, that means that we have tried to keep uh, the board meetings and finance and investment committee meetings and audit committee meetings and quality committee meetings going, but they've been very focused. So we've tried to uh, make certain that they... They really do just deal with the the important matters. We've also dealt with a few sign-offs um, um, out of the committee in the sense that we've delegated authority and powers. Um, but it is it is I mean that is something that's 
quite a challenge in, um, you know, in making certain those governance arrangements still work and are suitable, um, and at the same time as not burdening the exec particularly um, in producing lots and lots of papers for meetings. Uh, I mean, I actually think it's a very good thing. Uh, we've got a streamlined um, set of KPIs that we've pulled together for the purpose of, of, of over the last three weeks. I mean, and, and in a very short period of time, we've got a, a really a quite a focused um, bit, uh, series of balanced scorecard, if you like, um, which we can all focus on very quickly and deal with um, in short order. Um, so I think there's there are some from a governance perspective, or in fact in many perspectives, there are some really good things that um, will come out of this. And again, as non-execs, one of the things we we've, we've talked about as a board is um, just trying to uh, think about you know what I think the NHS is calling the sort of exit. And I think it's absolutely right. Um, absolutely, the focus at the moment is making certain we do all the right things and get through this as best we can. But I think particularly as non-execs, there's a, an opportunity in these situations just to sit back and remind ourselves what the overall strategy is for the organisation. Are there some real opportunities that are coming out of this or is there anything that's leading us and sort of directing us away from that strategy? Um, and I think the other thing that's um, really positive is... Um, the, S, the wider the STP, the wider STP, because some of the joint working that's going on at the moment is quite fantastic and wonderful to see. Um, everyone pulling together to, 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 you know, time of crisis, we do that very well, don't we? Trying to hold on to some of that um, as we come out of this crisis, I think would be would be fantastic and would be a lo really lovely thing. So strategically, like most parts of the country, we're trying to. Uh, the STP is trying to work more closely and um, and drive through all sorts of opportunities. Um, some of those have happened very quickly over the last three weeks, and some of that joint working is fantastic. Uh, strategically, there's been there's a very in Devon partnership. There's a, a strong digital uh, strategy. Uh, some of the stuff that's happened in terms of change, um, utilising uh, the technology, working from home, moving on to the you know um, virtual meetings. Uh, Devon is a as a geography is um, as was said earlier is very rural. Um, it is quite challenging getting to certain parts of Devon to do the job that we need to do. Uh, we've been pushing a digital strategy for a couple of years now. Um, guess what? Over the last three weeks, we've achieved uh, things that we thought were going to take a couple of years to um, embed and put in. So again, trying to take advantage of that as we come out of this crisis will be absolutely is a is I think one of the priorities, and not to end up going backwards. Um, Mm. So yeah, so sorry, I've I've gone on quite a bit there. Moved <laughs> away fine. right away from the question, but I think um, you know, as a non-executive director, there's quite a lot of things that you can you can help the executives think about. And I so say I do think that that the sort of exit strategy is one of the big ones. Now, as a mental health trust, the impact of COVID nineteen is going to really hit for you potentially after it's really left the rest of the. The NHS. So once it's left the news, it's not in the acute, it's not in the headlines every day about the pressure on the acute trusts. It's really going to be hitting mental health services. 
How are you thinking about that and preparing for the future in that respect? Yeah, that's a that's a really really good point, and and again it comes back to this sort of exit strategy. So so much of the operational stuff at the moment is is managing what we've got, looking after the people we've got, the patients we've got, and indeed actually working very closely with. Uh, Royal Devon and Exeter Trust, the Devon Partnership, the main site is on the same, in the same block, quite a big block, in Exeter with the Royal Devon and Exeter. So quite a lot of what we've been doing on the ground has been um, clearing space um, uh, and being ready to support Royal Devon and Exeter if the surge comes um, to the level that it, that it could. Um, Looking down the line, and indeed even now, uh, but as you rightly say, um, probably further down the line, there is a there is absolutely a, um, a mental health challenge, uh, which will which will probably would be with us for some years. Um, some of the things that some other staff have had to deal with, and indeed um, just the general public um, over the last few weeks, um, is, is extraordinary. Um, so we are, as part of our, and this obviously wasn't in the original strategy, but part of our the chain. One of the changes to the strategy as we exit is going to be, you know, what should we be doing and what need need we be aware of as we uh, as we go through this crisis and come out of it. And you know, post traumatic stress um, is 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 going to be one of the things we need to be very mindful and aware of. Now our teams already have um, a lot of that training and you know dealing with um, with post traumatic stress, but it is going to be something that needs to be have a bit more focus um, and think about the uh, the things that we do, um, particularly out in the community. Thank you so much for your time today, Ian. That's been really interesting to get a different perspective on how this pandemic is impacting trusts. Well, thank you, and um, and good luck. Thanks. To support our members and colleagues, all COVID-19 related briefings, blogs and news articles are openly available on our website, hfma.org.uk. There is no need to be a member to access these, so please tell your colleagues. We hope to provide regular podcasts throughout the pandemic covering a range of areas. If there is a particular aspect that you would like to hear about, please let us know. The HFMA will also be providing more webinars on a range of topics to both support the immediate needs of the NHS finance community and future CPD requirements. It is important that we support each other and keep our networks strong. We will do all that we can at the HFMA to enable this. If you have any suggestions of other support that we can provide, please email us at policy at hfma.org.uk. Thank you for listening to HFMA Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to keep up to date with new episodes.